Have you ever wondered how you can be involved with the Great Commission around the world? Or perhaps you feel like you know how to be involved with the Great Commission here. You know that you want to pray and tell others about Jesus here in your community. But what about around the world? You wonder, what can I do here to help the advance of the gospel around the world? Well, the, the little letter of 3 John tells us how. It tells us how we can help gospel workers. And this little letter also tells us that when we do help gospel workers, we become fellow co-workers, fellow co-laborers for the truth. Among other things, this is what we're going to turn and think about this morning from the letter of 3 John. If you haven't done so, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 3 John. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, uh, that's on page 1026. 1026. And while you're turning there, let me offer a little bit of background on this letter. You'll notice that uh, when you get there, the editors of the, at least the ESV translation, that's the translation we use here in the Pew Bible, you'll notice there the heading at the beginning of the book, the, the third letter of John, third John. That's a, a very reasonable heading, after all, we have in the first verse, uh, the author calling himself the elder, uh, stating who this letter is from, and that it's addressed to the beloved Gaius. That sounds very much like a letter in the first century, very much like a letter uh, today that's written in our own day. Conservative scholarship has largely agreed that 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were most likely written after John's Gospel sometime in the late 80s, uh, perhaps early 90s in the 1st century. Uh, that would have been toward the end of the Apostle John's life. Um, and that may be one that he's probably in his 90s somewhere, perhaps his early 90s. That could be one of the reasons that John calls himself the elder there in verse 1. Another reason that John may refer to himself as the elder is that he has served the church as a, a teacher and shepherd. We know from Acts chapter 20 and 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 that an elder is an officially recognized teacher in the church. Uh, is John referring then to his age or to his office? I don't think there's any real reason that we must actually decide between the two. 1 John, uh, the very first letter in this series of letters, was known as a circular letter which means that it was a letter that was meant to be passed around to the various churches. It would go to one church and get read out loud and then sent around to another church and sent around to another church. Uh, it was sent around probably to the, the uh, churches in John's area, which was around Ephesus, in and around Ephesus. Uh, Second John, the next letter over, seems like it was uh, a more particular letter, perhaps addressed to a particular congregation, uh, but it also actually seems to have become a circular letter uh, is sent around to additional churches as well. Third uh, John, the book that the letter we're studying together this morning, is, is unique in that it's addressed to a particular individual. Uh, it's addressed to an individual named Gaius. Uh, we'll talk about Gaius in just a minute, but let me say this about this letter to Gaius. While John was writing to an individual, to, to Gaius, John's also quite clearly uh, providing instruction in this letter to the local congregation of which Gaius was a member of. Uh, given the problems raised in this letter, Gaius may have actually been the means, or the mouthpiece, if you will, uh, for John to communicate to the congregation as a whole. After all, John concludes this letter by instructing Gaius, you'll see the very last kind of uh, couple of phrases there, to greet the friends, every one of them. I think the purpose of, of John's letter it's actually pretty simple. Uh, we'll see it as we work our way through it. John wrote this letter to commend Gaius for walking in the truth and for supporting brothers who preach the truth. 
John commends Gaius' good behavior in contrast to Diotrephes' bad behavior. Uh, because John wants Gaius to maintain his practice of, of receiving brothers in the faith uh, and sending them out. In particular, John wants uh, Gaius, it seems, to receive Demetrius as a brother, uh, just as he received others. So to kind of put the purpose of this letter in a sentence, uh, it's this. John commends Gaius as a fellow worker in the truth so that he will keep being a fellow worker in the truth. From 3 John, we can learn how to identify gospel workers, support gospel workers, and be gospel workers, whether we stay or go out for the sake of the name. We're going to examine this letter in its five sections under five headings. This letter is structured almost like a, a good five-paragraph essay. It's got an introduction, a conclusion. It's got three paragraphs for its, its body. Uh, so here are the points that correspond to the five sections of John's letter. First, a personal greeting. Second, a pastoral commendation. Third, a pastoral confrontation. Fourth, practical application. And fifth, parting words. Those are the five points that we're going to work through to be the outline of the rest of the sermon. If you didn't catch them, not to worry. I'll repeat each point as we're moving into each new section, like now. Uh, first, we're going to look at John's personal greeting. It's personal greeting. Uh, and as we do, we're looking here at the opening of the letter. Uh, let's read 3 John. Let me read first 3 John verses 1 to 4 now. This is John's personal greeting. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well, for your, well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. John, the Apostle John, he's, uh, he writes with such warmth and affection. Notice there he calls uh, Gaius in verse 1. He calls him beloved, which means dear friend. Dear friend. And not only that, but he also expresses his love for him in the truth. Uh, here we can see John's warmth and affection. They're, they're not founded in emotionalism, but upon their mutual embrace of the truth of Jesus Christ. John's use of the word truth there in verse 1 is conditioned by how he has used the word and the concept of truth throughout his other writings. In John's gospel, we see Jesus. Jesus is presented as the truth. Jesus himself is the truth. We see that in John chapter 14, verse 6. And in First and Second John, the truth is clearly identified with the content of the gospel itself. That the eternal Son of God came in the flesh. We see that particularly in Second John, uh, verse 7. Jesus is the God-man who came to save sinners from the wrath of God by offering Himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. It's in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-4, to 4, and in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1-2. and 2. This is the truth that John and Gaius believe and hold together. It's the truth that generates John's love for Gaius, and no doubt Gaius' love for John. John loves Gaius in the truth. But, but who is Gaius? In some ways, Gaius, he's, he's actually kind of just your average Joe. Uh, you see, Gaius was a common name in the Roman Empire. We've got other references, three other references to other Gaiuses in the New Testament. Uh, Gaius of Macedonia in Acts chapter 19, verse 29. Gaius of Derby in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. Gaius of Corinth in Romans chapter 16, 
verse 23, because Gaius was such a, a common name, we can't be sure if John was writing to one of those Gaiuses or to a fourth Gaius. Uh, in the end, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't change the, the nature and the, the intent, the meaning, or our understanding of the letter. Well, we don't know who this Gaius is. We do know what he's like. We know what he's like from this letter. So you'll see there in verse 2, John tells us that things are going on well with his soul. Uh, John actually tells us this in the midst of a prayer for Gaius. He's praying that the Lord would give Gaius good health, uh, just as he has given Gaius a good soul. John can say that because Gaius is walking in the truth, as the end of verse 3 says there. This idea of, of walking in the truth we saw actually in our study of, of 2 John a few weeks ago. It comes up in 2 John uh, verse 4. Walking in the truth conveys this idea of, of moving forward, steadily going down the path of, of righteousness and truth. And walking in the truth means, means walking in the ways of the one who is the truth, the ways of, of Jesus, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Gaius' way is, is marked by belief in the truth and behavior that embodies the truth. How does John know that? Well, you'll see there some, some of the brothers testified to Gaius' truth. Apparently, some fellow believers who knew John brought this report about Gaius to him. They, they testified. That is to say, they, they personally bore witness to John that Gaius was a believer of the truth and that he behaved in a manner that was worthy of the truth. Often, these two things are not found together. But they were found together in Gaius. Often, they're not found together. Uh, sometimes, a person's confession does not match their conduct. But it was not so with Gaius. And this made John happy. John says in, in verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now, it's possible that Gaius is actually one of John's converts. So the, the Apostle Paul refers to some of his converts as, as children in the faith. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, and Philemon 10. John may be doing the same thing here. Gaius may be one of... Uh, the people that John saw to faith saw come to faith in Christ through his his ministry, and and when I reflect on this, I, I think this is really instructive. At least for me, as a pastor, as a pastor and elder, nothing makes John happier than when believers in the truth behave in accordance with the truth. That they're walking in the truth. John experiences no greater earthly joy than this, and and you know. Uh, Personally, I don't know about you, but I can kind of get caught up with little joys. Uh, when this is clearly a much greater joy, isn't it? This is to be my greatest joy. And, and when I think about it in the terms that John states it here, it makes a lot of sense. Notice that John is writing here in, in familial terms. He's writing like a spiritual father about his spiritual children. Now, as, as a father, I, you know, there is nothing that I want more for my children than for them to know Jesus in a saving way. There'd be nothing on this earth that would give me greater joy for my children than that. And that's how John's writing. There's nothing in this world that makes him happier than to know that his children are walking in the truth. And that's how pastors should feel about those under their care. Brothers and sisters, there, there are so many things I want for you, but nothing more than this. To see you walk in the truth to see you make it safely home to heaven and you know what I'm gonna pray for you to have good health on the way 
That's what John prays for here. Do you see that there in verse 2? We, we, we are whole persons. God has made us to have a body and soul. And we should pray for one another as whole persons. Let's pray for each other to have good health in body and soul. That's not an immature prayer. It's a biblical prayer. Even the Apostle John prayed it. We should learn from him. John prayed that it would go well for Gaius physically and spiritually. So it's entirely appropriate for us to pray for one another, to make it safely home to heaven physically and spiritually. Friend, if you're, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer follower of, of Jesus Christ, then I want you to know this is my prayer for you too. I want you to come to know Jesus. I want you to come to know Jesus so that you make it safely home to heaven. The, the only way that that will happen is if you come to Jesus Christ in faith. That's how you become a person who, who walks in the truth and so makes it safely home to heaven. You see, the truth is, is that God created you and me, created everyone in this world. He created you in love, by love, and for love. God made you and every human on this earth in His image. He made you to know His love, to walk in His love, to experience His love. But we, just like the first man and the first woman, just like Adam and Eve, we have loved ourselves most. We have spurned God's love. Instead of loving God and loving our neighbors, we've loved ourselves. We've decided to live our own way rather than God's way. And that's what the Bible calls sin. Sin is rebellion against God and transgression of His law. Sin, uh, transgression against His law. Sin is, is loving ourselves more than we love God. And we've all failed to love God and love others as we ought. And our sin is an offense against God. And because God is holy, just, and good, He cannot let sins go unpunished. So we all stand in danger of facing His righteous and good and loving wrath against our sin forever in hell. You and I and everyone here need someone else to live and love the way that God made us to live and love. We also need someone to pay the punishment for our sins, the punishment that our sins deserve. And such a sacrifice must also spring from love. And this is the good news of the Bible. Jesus, in love and because of love, did both. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. And He lived the life that we have not lived. He lived the life of perfect obedience and love to God the Father. We are sinful, but Jesus was sinless. Jesus perfectly honored and obeyed and loved His heavenly Father. He not only told the truth and walked in the truth, He is the truth. Jesus was perfectly innocent. And yet in love, He died on the cross, bearing the punishment due to sinners like you and me. And three days after His death, God raised Jesus from the grave, vindicating Him and proving to us all that His life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. Jesus' life and death was the greatest display of love that the world has ever seen. And He calls us to receive the benefits of His love. He calls us to become God's beloved. He calls us to walk in the truth by turning from our sins and placing our faith in Him. He calls us to receive the, the grace and the mercy and the peace of God that He purchased. 
This is how we become God's beloved children who walk in truth and love. By believing that God's most beloved Son, Jesus Christ, is our all-sufficient Savior. And if you want to know more about what it means to that Jesus walked in the truth for us, that He demonstrated His love for us in His life and death and resurrection, then please come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a, a friend or family member that you came here to church with this morning. There's nothing more important that you can think about this morning, what it means that Jesus walked in truth for you so that you can walk in truth and follow Him and make it safely home to heaven. Well, that is John's personal greeting. He's greeted Gaius in love and in truth. His greeting is grounded in truth, manifested in love. It's filled with joy. And let's turn now and consider John's pastoral commendation. John's pastoral commendation. As we do, read 3 John verses 5 through 8 now. Looking at verses 5 through 8 here. John writes, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts, efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Now, these verses, as you just saw, they, they contain a couple of different kinds of, of commendations from the Apostle John. First, they begin with a, a pastoral commendation from John to Gaius for his display of love to the brothers who came to him. And then John pivots and commends to Gaius the practice of generously supporting gospel workers or, or Christian missionaries. So let's, let's unpack these two different commendations now. It seems as though Gaius has, has generally, personally and generally, generously welcomed these traveling missionaries into his home. And here John is commending him for displaying that Christian hospitality. The importance of this is, is actually going to be underscored a little later in the letter when we get to Diotrephes and Demetrius. But for now, it's enough to recognize that John is presently commending Gaius for how he has treated his fellow brothers in Christ. Notice here how John describes Gaius' hospitality. He describes his deeds as faithful and filled with effort for these brothers in the faith. These believers, these missionaries were strangers too. Gaius didn't know these men, but perhaps they, they came with a letter from John or some other apostle commending them to the believers in Gaius' city. That actually happened a lot in the first century when missionaries were going out. They would be sent with letters from their churches or from an apostle stating that they're workers for the truth and that Christians in that area should receive them. Uh, that, that may be something that John's referring to here. But notice I mentioned that Gaius' hospitality was mentioned as faithful, it was to strangers, and it was uh, effort-filled. Uh, hospitality takes effort. It just, it just comes with the territory. But look at what John says about the efforts of Gaius at the beginning of verse 6. These traveling missionaries testified of his love. Gaius' hospitality was a display of Christian love. Gaius was faithful. He expended effort for these brothers, even though they were strangers to him. And they testified to Gaius' Christian love. Brothers and sisters, if you have the, the means and the opportunity to support gospel workers in this way simply by allowing them to stay at your home, 
maybe even just giving them a place to stay for an overnight, a, a week or a month or, or maybe more, prayerfully consider doing that. Listen, it's going to take effort. Uh, it, it will be inconvenient. But notice, it will be loving. You'll get to know more about God's work around the world. You'll serve as a co-laborer in that good news. What else did God give us resources and homes than for the sake of His name? We're not building our own kingdoms and our own lives that we keep people out of. No, we are putting our lives in the use and the service of God's kingdom. We and everything that we have and are ought to be put into use for the sake of our king's kingdom. Gaius knew that, and John commended him for it. John not only commends Gaius for his display of hospitality, but John also commends another practice to Gaius. In the second half of verse 6, John commends to Gaius the practice of sending these brothers out on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Uh, that, that word sending contains within it kind of the idea of, of financial support, monetary support. I think that what John's saying here is that he's encouraging Gaius to, to help send and support these brothers in their missionary endeavors. Uh, this same language of, of sending is used in other places throughout the New Testament. So in Romans chapter 15, verse 24, the Apostle Paul asks the church in Rome to send him on his way. So Paul writes this there in Romans chapter 15, verse 24. Paul says, I hope to see you in passing as I go on to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Paul wanted uh, to be helped by the church in Rome on his missionary journey to Spain. Uh, we see something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 10-11. Paul asks the church in Corinth to help him on his way, so this is what he writes. He says, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. So Paul was writing, asking the church in Corinth to help Timothy on his way. Uh, and finally, Paul also writes in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16, Paul expresses his desire to visit the church in Corinth and to have them send him on his way. So Paul writes, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Now, a couple of things uh, stand out to me about these passages in the New Testament, these kind of sending passages, and John's description of sending workers here. First, I'm struck by the fact that these workers are sent by the local church. The Apostle Paul asked for the church in Rome to send him on to Spain. He asked for the church in Corinth to, to send uh, Timothy uh, on, for him to, sorry, for the church in Corinth to send him to Judea. Uh, he asked for the church in Corinth to send Timothy to him. It's, it's the church who is sending missionaries. Missionaries don't send themselves. They are sent, and they are sent primarily by the church. Anyone, I think, who endeavors to send themselves and to pursue their own mission, I think may be stepping outside of the practice of even the apostles themselves in the New Testament. The other thing that strikes me about John's description in verse 6 is the manner of the sending that he commends to Gaius. He encourages Gaius to send these missionaries out in a manner worthy of God. Now what would it mean? What would it mean for 
Gaius, and for that matter, for Gaius's church, to send these brothers on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Well, some translations render this clause with all they need. Send them on their journey with all they need. So uh, with that in view, John probably means to commend to Gaius the practice of sending gospel workers out in such a way that honors the Lord. Uh, Did they have the resources that they needed to make their journey? Did they have what they needed to continue their work? Uh, This meant material and monetary support. It could have meant more too. John's gentle request here then is that Gaius and his church ought to help gospel workers with whatever resources they needed. They ought to be generous as God has been generous. Uh, In in verse 7, John tells them why. He commends this kind of sending, this practice to them. The word for there at the beginning of verse 7 tells us that John, he's going to give us this reason. For, uh, for why he's thinking about sending in this way. Why should Gaius and his church house, send, and support these missionaries? He says, because they have gone out for the sake of the name. They're not going out on the mission field for financial gain or to make their own names great. They're going to the mission field to proclaim the great name of Jesus Christ. They're going to the mission field because they long to see the name of the Lord Jesus Christ exalted among the nations. Is this not the motivation for missions? Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, about why he himself was pursuing missions. He said that he received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of Jesus' name among all the nations. That was Paul's motivation too. The sake of Jesus' name among the nations. Reflecting on this motivation for missions, John Stott wrote, quote, The highest of missionary motive is neither obedience to the Great Commission, important as that is, nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing. Strong as that incentive is, especially when we contemplate the wrath of God, but rather zeal burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ, we should be jealous for the honor of His name, troubled when it remains unknown, hurt when it is ignored, indignant when it is blasphemed, and all the time anxious and determined that it shall be given the honor and glory which are due to it. Brothers and sisters, that's the motivation for missions. And the motivation for your life, right? You should want to see Jesus' name so exalted in your life. You you want to be anxious for that, working for that, endeavoring to see Christ exalted. These men, John says, they went out for that reason. They went out so that the name of Jesus might be glorified. And John also says that they even modeled it in their conduct. They accepted nothing from the Gentiles. They did not want to burden those who they were sharing the gospel with. This was another reason that they needed support. The support of Gaius and his church. These gospel workers didn't want to connect their teaching with the taking of money from those who were in need of hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. This this practice of not taking money for their teaching was actually new and startling 
for those in the, the Greek Gentile culture. You see, so often philosophers in that day would turn up to a town, they'd stand up on a, preach, uh, on a, on a street corner, and they'd start just teaching. And they would expect people to pay for them to keep teaching. They were more like entertainers than philosophers. And the brothers that John is writing about here, they stood, their practice stood in stark contrast to the philosophers. For they were seeking to humbly serve those who had never heard of Jesus. From those who had never heard of Jesus, they took nothing. John says that these are the kind of men we should support. Here John's teaching us about the kind of people we should support in gospel work. In verse 8, John says even, he even more forcefully commends to Gaius, and by extension his church, the practice of generously supporting those who go out for the sake of the name. Here, here's the truth. If you find the right missionaries who have the right motives... They are going to use the money that you give to them in the right way. In a way that honors the sake of the name and prevents a burden from falling upon those who have never heard of Jesus Christ. Now I think in God's kindness to us as a church, uh, He has connected us with workers like these. We, we support workers like these. Workers in East Asia and India and Europe. And it's my prayer uh, that He would continue to allow us to generously support them as a congregation. By supporting workers like these, Gaius and other believers become fellow workers in the truth. So, brothers and sisters, we are workers in the truth. Our sending and supporting those who go out for the sake of the name makes us fellow workers for the truth. So let's, let's support gospel work around the world by being hospitable in our homes here. Uh, by committing our resources to the work and, and giving to the church so the church can give to this work around the world. Praying for workers that we know. Commending good work and workers to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And by staying in contact with workers that we uh, know on the field. Checking in on them and telling them that we're praying for them uh, as well as asking them how we can help them in their work. Uh, thank you for those of you who have done that, uh, who have contacted the elders and say, hey, I know this great Christian worker. Would you, would you meet with them? Pray with them. Consider supporting them. Uh, the elders uh, tomorrow night are going to have an elders meeting, which we'll get to meet a worker that one of you have commended to us. And we'll greet them and pray for them and try and encourage them. Uh, so if you know faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who are going out or have gone out, don't hesitate to reach out to us. We'd love to meet them and pray for them and encourage them in, in any way that we can. Well, this, uh, this pastoral commendation of Gaius for his hospitality and John's pastoral commendation to Gaius, the practice of, of sending and supporting workers who go out for the sake of the name, is contrasted next, sharp, it's sharply contrasted with the practice of a man by the name of Diotrephes. So let's turn now and consider our next point, pastoral confrontation. And as we do, read 3 John verses 9 and 10. Uh, John writes in verse 9, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So these, uh, these 
few verses here are the reason that we had that reading from the Old Testament uh, with Uzziah where he uh, doesn't listen to the priests. He puts himself and his interests first. He pridefully and arrogantly goes about things and he's frankly punished by the Lord for it. Uh, we see that this happening in the New Testament too, this example of pride here in Diotrephes. It's a, in this letter, it's kind of a sudden uh, and startling revelation uh, that John has sent a letter to the church, but, but this man Diotrephes has in some way interfered with John's exercise of apostolic authority. Uh, this must be the, the situation that uh, primarily gave rise to this letter. And it leads us to wonder, what did John write? Uh, and, and what happened? Well, John, he, he could be referring to the letter of 2 John. Um, he could have sent that letter along and for some reason Diotrephes kind of objected to it or, or publicly denounced it. That seems like a plausible scenario. Um, but we, we don't really know for sure. Um, and it's not really necessary for us to know for sure uh, what we need here from God's Word. John does, does not describe Diotrephes in very glowing terms, does he? Uh, Diotrephes likes to put himself first, John says. Sadly, we have run into many of those people, haven't we? Uh, sadly, we have been some of those people too, haven't we? Where we put ourselves first. Diotrephes puts himself first. He's concerned about his position and his power in the church. Unlike Gaius, and those who have gone out for the sake of the name, Diotrephes is concerned first and foremost with his name. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but, but the greatest leaders in the Bible are often those who have kind of demurred on taking the lead. Uh, so Moses, you know, he made excuses. Uh, Amos argued, you know, I'm only a shepherd. Uh, Isaiah said, look, I'm a man of unclean lips. I can't speak on behalf of the Lord. Uh, Diotrephes, on the other hand... He kind of steps forward to that position. And he, he wants that greatest prominence and power. This is deeply concerning because he does not even acknowledge the Apostle John's authority. Here, here is John, a divinely commissioned Apostle of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He has been commissioned directly by Jesus. And Diotrephes is challenging his authority. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21 teaches us that the church is being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And Diotrephes is dangerously rejecting the very foundation of the church. And do you know how John recognizes it? Do you know how John recognizes Diotrephes' rejection of his authority? It's through his behavior. Notice that John doesn't question his belief. It is Diotrephes' behavior that leads John to see the dangerous road that Diotrephes is traveling down. You see, a person's life can reveal that his conduct does not match his confession. A person's life can reveal that his confession isn't worth very much. In verse 10, John threatens to come if necessary. And if he does, he will address what Diotrephes is doing. What is Diotrephes doing? Well, he's doing four things. Diotrephes is first speaking wicked nonsense against John and the gospel workers associated with him. Second, Diotrephes is refusing to show Christian hospitality to those who have gone out for the sake of the name. Third, Diotrephes is somehow preventing other believers from showing Christian hospitality to those who have gone out for the sake of the name. 
those who want to, John says there. And fourth, Diotrephes is putting believers of the truth out of the church. In other words, he is excluding Christians who are acting like Christians, welcoming people into their homes and being hospitable. Diotrephes, he's nothing less than a church bully. But notice here, as we ought to reflect, I think, on, on the Apostle John's writing, he sees how truth and love go hand in hand. John sees how truth and love go in hand. Diotrephes is not showing Christian love. And so his life is not in accord with the truth that even perhaps Diotrephes himself teaches. Leaders in the church cannot just be good and faithful teachers, though they cannot be less. They must also be those who exhibit by their lives a submission to authority, love for Christ's name above all else, and a genuine love for fellow believers. We can all learn from Diotrephes. Sadly, we have had some of the same tendencies that he had. He loved to put himself first. Be careful. Be on guard when bitterness and entitlement uh, creeps into your heart and life. Be careful when you begin to think, that should be me. I should be doing that in the church. Why do they get to do that? Diotrephes was sowing discord in the church. Let's be on guard against excluding one another from events or gatherings as Diotrephes may have been doing. Let's pray for hearts that long to have Christ's name mentioned first and not our own. Well, in order to make sure that Gaius is crystal clear on how he's to respond to this situation that Diotrephes has created, John gives Gaius practical application that he needs for this circumstance in verses 11 and 12. So let's turn now to consider our next point. Practical application. Here, as we do, uh, read 3 John verses 11 and 12. John writes, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony. And you know that our testimony is true. Verse 11 you see there begins with an admonition from John for Gaius to imitate good. When he says, do not imitate evil, uh, he's clearly communicating to Gaius that Diotrephes' that example is not to be followed. Gaius is not to put himself first. Rather, he's to put the name of the Lord Jesus Christ first. Gaius is not to reject John's authority. Instead, he's to submit to the divinely commissioned apostles' authority. Gaius is not to reject faithful Christian missionaries. Rather, he's to receive them, support them, and send them on their way. Moreover, Gaius is not to condemn or cast out of the church fellow believers who do receive faithful Christian missionaries. Support them and send them on their way. Gaius would do well to commend them, just as John has commended him for his loving efforts for the brothers. In the second half of, of verse 11, John might even be implying that Diotrephes' salvation is in question. John might be saying, you know, I'm not certain about Diotrephes. I'm not certain about him and about those who act like him, that they're true believers. For John, the language of seeing God amounts to having faith in God. 
John got that idea from Jesus in John chapter 3 when Jesus told Nicodemus that a man cannot even see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. That's John chapter 3 verse 3. And consider uh, what the Apostle John said in his first letter. Uh, let's turn there together actually. Turn over a few pages in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 14 to 18 briefly. That's on page 1022 of the Bibles provided. In 1 John chapter 3 verses 14 to 18, this is what the Apostle John wrote. John wrote, We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. You see how John holds love and truth hand in hand. See what John is saying there. Love for your brother in Christ is evidence that you're a true believer. It doesn't make you a true believer, but it is evidence that you are a true believer, that you've passed from death to life. Now, turning back to 3 John, we can see that John is, is very uncertain about those who claim to love God but do evil in the form of hostility towards Christians. The practical application is simple. Do good to your fellow brothers in Christ. John presents Gaius with a ready-made situation for application in Demetrius. Perhaps Demetrius carried this letter. Do good to Demetrius, John is effectively saying. He says, Demetrius, he's received a good testimony from everyone. By which uh, John means that Demetrius is a faithful brother in Christ. He's a, a faithful preacher of the truth and, and everybody knows this about him. Not only that, but notice what else testifies to Demetrius' good testimony. It's right there in the middle of verse 12. It's the truth itself. Isn't that interesting? How can the truth of the gospel itself testify to someone's good testimony? Well, the truth of the gospel is transformative. It changes us and has a powerful effect. Our lives testify to the credibility of the truth. When we live in the truth and walk in the truth, and the truth displays its transforming and redeeming power in our lives when we walk in the truth. When we take the truth of Jesus Christ into our hearts, it will come out of our lives. Does the truth of the gospel receive a good testimony in your life? Does your confession match your conduct? Is there tension between gospel truth and what your life conveys? Or can it be said of you, his life, his or her life, commends the truth of the gospel. Can it be said that your life displays the transforming power of the gospel? Uh, let's pray and purpose to live in such a way that it may be said of us that we have received a good testimony from the truth itself. John says three things there in verse 12. First, he says everyone testifies to Demetrius' good testimony. Second, that the truth testifies to Demetrius' testimony. And finally, third, the Apostle John 
And his companions in ministry testify to Demetrius' good testament, this threefold testimony of Demetrius. And John adds to this, and you know that our testimony is true. Gaius, he knows John. He, he knows him to be faithful to the truth. So when John adds his commendation of Demetrius, all doubt is removed. Gaius can be certain that John's testimony about Demetrius' character and confession are true. John has told Gaius everything that he needs to know in order to receive, support, and send Demetrius on his way for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. Like John, let's give others a good testimony. So if you're introducing a fellow brother or sister, a fellow believer in Christ to someone else, speak well of them. We should testify to God's work in their lives. Praise God for their humility or love or service. Praise God for their love, humility, or service. Here's so-and-so. I want to introduce you to him. He's a wonderful brother in the Lord. He's very humble and kind. I praise God for that. Right? We're giving God praise for what he's done in their life. Not praising them. We're praising God for them and for what he's done. How the truth has been revealed in their lives. So like John, let's give others a good testimony. Let's speak well of them and praise God for what he's done. It's important for us to do this. For it, it encourages us to look for evidence of grace in each other's lives. We need to do this because we, we're great. Maybe it's just me. We're great at having a really critical eye. Right? We can spot the flaws really easily in other people. And not, not so much in ourselves. But can we spot grace? Can we spot God's love and what He's done in them? Let's, let's look for that. Positively look for what God has done in each other's lives. It helps orient us, I think, in a, in a healthier way. It helps to build up the body, too. And encourage others who may be struggling in the faith, too. Well, finally, we should consider John's parting words in this letter. So let's read verses 13 to 15 of 3 John. This is John's parting words. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. Like 2 John, the Apostle knows that it's better that some things are left unsaid in a letter and said face to face. John hopes to speak with Gaius in an intimate manner. As I, I mentioned when we studied the end of, of 2 John, we can learn from the Apostle. It is better not to put some things down by pen or text or email or status update or tweet. It, before you hit send or post or put something in the mail, Ask yourself, does this need to be said face-to-face? -face? Should this be said face-to-face? -face? Would it be better if this would be said face-to-face? -face? That's a good question to ask. Some things need to be said face-to-face -face so that, you know, even just practically the meaning is not understood. Some things should be said face-to-face -face so that the right tone of love and affection are communicated. John's parting words contain a prayer for peace. That phrase, peace be with you, was a common kind of wish prayer as somebody would, would go. Uh, it's wish prayer in the first century. It was a common kind of departing remark. But given all that was going on in, the, in Gaius' life and in that church, it carried with it a lot of freight, didn't it? 
peace was necessary, for there had been a rejection, a public rejection of apostolic authority, a public rejection of Christian missionaries, a public reception of Christian missionaries that drew the ire of Diotrephes and resulted in him excluding believers. Gaius and his church were no doubt unsettled by all that was going on, and John's prayer for peace was appropriate and necessary. Only God can give peace. And in God's kindness, I think he's given our church much peace. Let's not take that for granted. Let's not take peace for granted. Let's continue to labor for peace and pray for peace. A lack of peace actually hinders and holds up the work of the gospel. Peace is crucial to the mission of the church. And as we conclude, consider that John closes his letter where he opened it with a loving, warm, personal greeting. Friendship is so often underestimated and underappreciated until you need it. Gaius could move forward in imitating good, knowing that John and his fellow believers loved him in the truth. That would be important should Diotrephes not repent of his ways and continue to stir up division and discord in the church. Those who imitate good need good friends to encourage them to not grow weary in doing good, especially in the face of criticism and complaint. In this closing verse, we see something else important too. Something else important that's, that's important really to the continue of the work of the gospel, and that's friendship. Alongside truth, love, Christian hospitality, financial support, and peace, John places friendship. John and Gaius were friends in the truth and for the truth, all for the sake of the name. May the Lord be pleased to give each of us such a bond with other believers and such a burden to see the name of Christ made known among the nations. Let's pray together.